0: hey everyone welcome back to a little impolite i'm your host devo and today we're diving into what we're supposed to had a brief offline conversation that was not related to the topic i had intended to go to but i promise we'll get back to it but my idea today was to go into the uncharted territories of the subconscious and bar from a little carl jung and my expert today things are a little raw in the subconscious and sometimes a lot impolite, depending upon our perspective, but know what you're thinking sounds a bit intense, but trust me, when I first started down this journey of shadow work, I sort of felt the same way. I'm like, what is this stuff and how am I supposed to come to terms with it? So if you've been following along any particular episode of the show, you know that we sort of touch on that a lot. And we take on topics that are sometimes a bit impolite, if you will, but sensitive and some topics that a lot of people are really just afraid to have conversations about because a lot of times they deal with our own shadows and our own context and all the trauma that we carry with us and we do carry a lot of trauma which i had no idea that was a thing until i really started going into this hole so you know that i've had my own dance with this inner shadow these egos these sneaky beliefs that you don't even really realize they're pulling your strings so For me, you know, I'm in my 40s. We're talking about decades of conditioning, inherited ideas about success and and security and self-worth. So all of these came crashing down around on me around 10-ish years ago because I had some uh, pretty epic failures in the sense of my context at the time. They didn't turn out to be failures. They turned out to be catalysts for change for me. But these dances I did with these shadows, as painful as they were, they, they ended up, like I said, becoming a catalyst that really drove me towards, how do I say, really better understanding myself and able to sort of take a look at myself introspectively and understand where I was the one causing the problems for my own life. And when you take the time to hold this, hold yourself up to these mirrors and, and see, really truly see the patterns that govern your actions, it becomes this cathartic gut-wrenching realization. It's almost like personal therapy that you're giving yourself. And, and there's no playbook to navigate around it, really. It's just, and it never ends, really. It's like every single day is is sort of a life hack of having to try to figure out your shit and come to terms with who you are and, and the learned context of everything that you are. So anyway, it's, it's a continuous journey for me of unraveling and understanding and rebuilding and unraveling and understanding and rebuilding. And I thought it would be really fun to have a conversation today with this context of shadow work and just sort of the idea of how do we come to terms with sort of our own drama. So I'm welcomed today by Thais Gibson, and she is a trailblazer in personal development and the subconscious mind. Um, Her innovative approach to attachment theory, which is something we're probably going to touch a lot on today, is really going to, at least for me, it's really illuminated my understanding of how I've been really um, stalking her on Instagram and and YouTube. She's got a really prolific YouTube show, but it really has started to illuminate my understanding of how our past influences our present and how we can harness this knowledge to redefine our future, I guess, if you will. Before I bring her to the studio, she's sitting in the green room right now. He has a bazillion different degrees or certifications across psychological disciplines, and, and she's drawn on this knowledge to create what her integrated attachment theory, which we're gonna talk about. She has a book called Attachment Theory, a guide to strengthening the relationships in your life, which I'm gonna talk a lot about that because I can always use some help in relationships. It combines traditional teachings and around subconscious patterns to really give us some powerful tools for powerful change. As I mentioned, she has a really brilliant YouTube show. If you have not checked her out, please do that. She has a significant online presence there. She also started a personal development school which I think it's called integrated attachment theory, or it's based on integrated attachment theory. So she has this development school. We're gonna learn a little bit about that. Um, She's an eloquent public speaker and just a lot of different, a bevy of knowledge around a, a variety of topics. So strap in folks, we're about to disrupt our patterns, poke at our egos a bit and make fun of my, make fun of ourselves and unleash the power of our shadow mind. So let's bring her in the show and let's stop me talking. Welcome to Unlearn Everything, where we take you on a journey beyond convention. Every week, we challenge the familiar, confront biases, and dismantle the narratives that bind us. This podcast is a haven for critical thought, where thinkers and doers come together to question and redefine the world around us. Through candid discussions and spirited debates, We uncover the unspoken, rethinking what we know about life, work, and society. Unlearn Everything is not just a dialogue. It's a solution to the echo chambers that limit us. It's where we expand our minds and enrich our understanding. So if you're ready to challenge the status quo and embrace a new perspective, join us. Let's unlearn the old and discover the new together. Shut up and sit down. Welcome. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm honored. You heard my introduction. That's not what we started off in our first conversation with. So at some point, we'll go back around to our first conversation because that's really interesting to me. But I thought we'd start the show off today centered around your expertise because, you know, this is you are the guest and I want to learn from you. So I think I'd like to start it off with one of my favorite psychologists. His name is Carl Jung. Um, for those of you who don't know him, I'm sure you've heard of me talk about him a bit. But there's a quote that I read from him a few years back, and this is probably like 10 years ago. And it really resonated with me, and I don't even know where I read it. I came across it on an Instagram post or a banner. Who knows? You know, those things that sort of like when the student is ready, the message arrives type of thing, because I, I really, truly believe in that, which is the sort of centered around the conversation we you're just having that intersection between what do we create and manifest versus like what's already intended for us. I don't really understand those two where they end and what the other, other begins. But the quote was, until you make the unconscious conscious,
1: it, it will direct... direct- replies, and you so will call they- it sweet. That's one of my favorite quotes, literally. Sorry to interrupt you, but I...
0: <laughs> no, I love that you know it and finished it because it was a game changer for me. So yes. I guess my question to start things off is, you're obviously a, a Jungian fan, I'm, I'm assuming.
1: Yes, yes definitely.
0: yeah, definitely. So, tell me a little bit if you can just set the stage for for our listeners, who you are, how you got here, you know, what are some of the key poking points in your life that have really I guess manifested who you've become today and and, and what you're doing on the planet to to make every everything better and sharper and cleaner and smarter and happier and all those things.
1: <laughs> so, I grew up being really obsessed with this kind of stuff. I mean, I think at a young age, I was really interested in psychology. I was grew up being like, oh, I, I want to be a therapist, you know, all these different things. But I actually went through like kind of my own dark night of the soul very strongly at a young age, um, which I think, you know, as difficult as that was, sort of like you mentioned in your intro, you know, really hard, but ultimately it was a catalyst for change. And so I played soccer growing up. I, I for stint in time, was like, I'm going to be a professional soccer player. Um but I, I didn't I wasn't quite at that level but I I uh, got a full ride UN scholarship to a school in the US and all that stuff but actually in my scouting year in high school I had a really bad knee surgery knee injury and um and got addicted to opiates directly yeah. after and so it really set this sort of stage for me at like it was like right before my 15th birthday that I had the surgery and at 15 years old I was like suddenly going through this like rabbit hole of addiction I didn't even really know what addiction was I just knew that like I couldn't stop taking this thing and I knew Someone who had these available and I kept going after them and going after them. And then it just, you know, (laughs) unraveled from there. So it was interesting. Like I I really went through that at a young age. And I think, you know, at a very deep level, I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, what's happening to me that I can't stop this? That I'm like, and I would sit down and I had a lot of like shame around it because prior to that I had good grades and I was an athlete Mm -hmm. and sort of a high achiever. And I was like, I was so obsessed and fixated on this addiction. Like it's like all you can think about all the time. And I would sit down at night and I would journal and I would write like, I'm going to avoid this girl in the hallway and I'm going to delete her phone number and all the things I'm going to do to like stop using, like stop doing this. And every day I would just go back down the same path. Like all the ways I'm going to give this up tomorrow. This is the last time. And then I would just repeat the cycle over and over and over again. I went through pretty much like a six-year stint of almost daily use of opiates. And and
0: Where where'd you right? get it? You're at 15 years old. How do you get access to opiates at 15? Back in those I mean, days,
1: <laughs> high school. The, the high school I went to, a lot of people had a lot of things
0: going on over there. I don't know what our age comparison is, but I I'm crazy about this because my kids tell me stories all the time. I have a 17 and a 14 year old, and they tell me the same thing. They can basically get anything in their school. Yeah. When I was in high school, we didn't even talk about drugs. There was like the just sort of like the fringe folks were sort of hanging on the outside doing drugs, and but. I didn't have access this to girl it, got that sort me of stuff.
1: too. Yeah, she got me because she told me. So I was like knee surgery. I was using them, and I had a conversation with her. She was a year older than me, and, and she was a lacrosse player. And she said, "Oh, um, these it, they are performance enhancers." And to me, who was like, "I'm gonna," I had a lot of drama in my home too. For sure, I became an addict because of all this unprocessed trauma in childhood. And I was very sensitive and definitely like sponged it all up and didn't have an outlet and didn't know how to process it. And then it was through sports. Like it was like I would run and I would sort of get freedom there. And then when that was taken away, I felt like just all of this emotional turmoil with like no outlet. And I remember she said to me, well, they're a performance enhancer and that like sold me on it even further. I was already like feeling like, wow, it's so much easier to be numb like this all day. And like just enjoying that sort of feeling and then when she said that to me i was like oh my gosh like it really clicked in for me that like i was going to be doing this for a while anyways it, there's high school I, i'm <laughs> where i grew up at least high, lots of things were very available in high school and, and this um, is canada
0: right this is, this canada. is canada yeah uh-huh. yeah i would argue you like u.s
1: high schools and like larger cities are like probably no different
0: you say that but i tell you I've i've spoken to a few canadians through the podcast And a lot of them sort of share that, that they had access to basically anything they wanted in Canada. And what I was saying, I don't know if you heard, when I was in high school, I didn't have access to anything. At least I just didn't know it existed. Maybe my dad ruled with such an iron fist that I was too scared to explore that. So I don't know. But I I never did drugs. I never did opiates. I never had painkillers. I actually didn't have my first drink of alcohol until I was a freshman in college. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that wasn't, that was the opposite of you.
0: <laughs> and, teach me, teach me, teach me.
1: And <laughs> and, and um, and it was hard. It's a really hard thing to go through. I, I think, you know, obviously like people get into that sort of space because I think there's unprocessed trauma for a lot of people that like you, you, it's a great way of sort of escaping yourself and all that sort of internalized trauma that people might be experiencing. But on top of that, there's sort of the secondary layer where like, the idea that like, okay, I'm going to stop this thing that I know is like ruining my life. And you tell yourself every single day, I'm going to stop using, I'm going to stop using. And then every single day you just repeat the pattern over and over and over again, like that in and of itself is like its own turmoil. And so, so I went through this really hard struggle. i that. I hated that. That was the worst part of it for me it was just like feeling so helpless to myself. Like, and it bred for me and I'm sure it breeds for a lot of people, a lot of self-loathing, like what's wrong with you that you can't, like, I would just beat myself up about it all the time. So I was high functioning enough. I still got a soccer scholarship, not to like a big school, but just to like a smaller D1 conference. And and uh, things got a lot worse for me before they got better. But but I was in a class right before rock bottom for me. And and somebody said to me, Oh, the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. And like for me. Somebody just explained all the reasons that I was going through this battle with myself every single day, all the reasons I would journal and say all the things I'm not going to do and try to use all these strategies to avoid or to not use and go back to the same patterns over and over again. And somebody just like summarized it for me and made me feel in that moment. And I didn't even tell them that like what my experience was. This just like came up in a conversation and it made everything make sense. And I knew from that moment that like, okay, I'm not weak or useless or a failure at everything. (laughs) I am going through a battle between my conscious and subconscious mind. And my subconscious mind, for whatever reason, wants to not pain. And my conscious mind says, nope, we're going to stop. We're going to stop. We're going to stop. And my subconscious goes back to the same pattern. So I became like really obsessed after that with learning about the subconscious mind and just learning in general because I felt like at that point, by the time I was having that conversation, I had done outpatient rehab, inpatient rehab, gone to AA meetings a few times, NA meetings a few times, you know, trying all that stuff and like things were not working for me. And so it, it was sort of like, okay, like here we are. I suddenly have like this answer and this is going to give, this is going to give me the key. And it did. Like I, you know, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't do rehab or AA or NA if anybody's listening and going through any kind of struggle like that. I mean, obviously there are systems and programs like that for, for great reason, but I know for me, I didn't, I wasn't really able to do a lot of changing until I learned to rewire what was going on at a subconscious level. So that's kind of, that brought me into like, I, I was in school for a long time after that I got sober. And then went to, you know, I did about 13 different certifications and all these different things, starting off with hypnosis and NLP and all those sort of typical subconscious things to better understand. And then went down the rabbit hole and all these other sort of modalities and uh, just became obsessed. Like, I feel like I almost sort of shifted my addiction into learning for a period of time, which, you know, I have a more balanced relationship to now, but but was good for me. Like, what a better way of upgrading what you're obsessed over. And uh, I was so passionate about it. I just started giving workshops for free to people. Before I was even finished school, I was just like just public speaking for free. Like just somebody listen. Like these, why is nobody talking about the subconscious mind?
0: Where and, do you do that? Like, what kind of stuff were you doing free lectures? For? I
1: would I would like rent space at a library, host things on like Meetup, Eventbrite, just like put my own events together. And, uh, and it started with like 10 people came and then eventually like 100 people would come and I was like 21, 22 years old and just sort of sharing these things at the time. And yeah, I went through that whole sort of process of speaking. And then it just, it launched a client practice for me really quick, just sort of by accident. Like I wasn't intending, but people would be like, do you see clients? And I'd be like, I'm still in school. And they'd be like, it's okay. Like, do you see clients anyways? Like I'll be a client. So, so uh, I built a big client practice and and did that for about seven years and had a, a two year or so wait list. And then was like, okay, this isn't scalable. It's, it's I'm not even able to share what I want to share with enough people. And then Package it into online courses and and uh, YouTube and all that stuff.
0: I envisioned you when you said you were just giving out free lectures. There's a gentleman here in in Charlotte, downtown Charlotte. I I don't know if he's homeless or not, but every day without fail, he sets up on a corner in one of the busier intersections, gets up on a ladder. He's like a, he's built himself this little platform, and for hours he just goes on and on, and he's oh. reading lect lectures from the Bible from. Different, different lecturers, different philosophies, and just sits there and he's like, he's very, very animated, but he just screams at the top of his lungs these lectures. Mm-hmm. When you first said you were giving me a free lecture, I was wondering, you go downtown? <laughs> you Is that like, crazy, uh, man? <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> but I do appreciate, you know, the, the fearlessness of people who do stuff like that, right? Just to like truly wow. be themselves. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's
0: great. I, I, I suspect he has a few more um, opiates than you were doing. Okay. Time time. Yeah, I, I've actually had conversations with him before, and he's, he's not fully together. Well, maybe he is together. Maybe we're the ones that aren't fully together. So I like what you just said that little journey you just took me on. You were making your unconscious conscious, sort of like that quote that I read at the outset from Carl Jung. So that's pretty. What's phenomenal to me about you, and I knew this about you from a very early age because you've talked about it before that you were sort of saturating yourself with knowledge around how to whether it's psychology and shadow work and all the different things, I don't know that I ever had any conversations with anyone, certainly not myself about any of that. I sort of just followed this benign vanilla role early in my life. So I always wonder what separates people like yourself that early on in their life, they had this, this inspiration to do something different than everyone else was doing. Like what, what do you think was the reason why you had this curiosity around this sort of stuff?
1: Oh, I think for me, it felt like it was life or death. Like I, I, that may sound like exaggerated now as like somebody who's, you know, in a totally different phase of life and it's been like 14 years since then or whatever, but well, like even longer since I first used. But, you know, I think part of it was just like, I needed to learn. Like I knew that like addiction is suffering, like, you know, no matter what anybody says, even though you seek it and you seek it, you know, you're suffering. And and i think it was like this is going to be the key to kind of unlocking all the suffering and i just i really wanted to be happy like i just wanted to be somebody who was a happy person could be joyful i know that you know nobody's ever going to be happy 24 7 but i just i wanted peace like i just i i grew up in a household that was full of chaos like absolute chaos and i was very sensitive i really internalized all of that chaos and then my mind was chaos and you know one of the things that i noticed for example That I got really into meditating, like really, really into meditating, like hour and a half in the morning, hour when I would get back from finishing my day, 45 minutes or so before sleep. Like I would obsess. How old
0: are you? How old are you when you're doing this? Like 20, 19. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and went through that and was so into it. And one of the first times I ever meditated, I sat there and I like sat there and I closed my eyes and I, I was you know, you're supposed to observe your thoughts, and I'd never done this before. And I, so I'm sitting and I'm observing my thoughts and trying to do what I think I'm supposed to be doing. And I was sitting there going, I can't do this. I can't do anything. Like, I'm going to fail at this, just like I failed at everything. Like, this is never going to work for me. I'm going to go back to living the same miserable life. And then because I'm observing instead of identifying, I was like, oh my gosh, no wonder I want to numb pain because. I have internalized all of this like internal dialogue from things I saw in my family dynamics, internalized it. Now it's become my own. I really think our own internal dialogue is very much our internalized dialogue from our environment and what we're exposed to. And then here I am in this place and no wonder I'm numbing myself all day. I'm trying to escape my internal reality. I'm trying to escape all these terrible thoughts all day. And so, you know, when I'm on opiates, that sort of slows down a little bit that, you know, and it kept taking me out of this space of thinking that like, I was this terrible failure, a miserable person and more into like, I'm a human, like, no wonder (laughs) I'm addicted. No wonder I'm in this position. And it also got rid of like so much of that shame that I was carrying as I started to become more self-aware because I was making some of these patterns conscious. So for me, to answer your question is I got really into it because I felt like it was my ticket to like freedom again, like to peace, to something I was always like sort of seeking on some level.
0: I always find it fascinating that humans have to be for the most part, have to be pushed up against some threshold of, in your case, death, possibly, to make changes. And and maybe that's just the point of everything. Like you, may, I, I suppose you can be proactive about that, but then it draws back to the whole polarity. Like, How do you know that you need help with anything before you actually have something happen to you that forces you to recognize Absolutely. that you need help or something? Are you familiar? Because I'm not. And, I, and I've started to dive into this. What actually happens neurologically when you take drugs like marijuana or opiates, you know, in your case to numb this pain, this negativity that you were feeling, what, what actually happens when you're doing that?
1: In terms of what? Like in terms
0: of- what, Like what, what is it, what, I know it's a hallucinogenic and there's, and it's repressants and suppressants and all those things, but what's actually happening that's altering the pathway of, of critical thinking or the pathway of, of conscious versus subconscious thinking? Like, I don't really understand what drugs do to someone's mind.
1: I think just in a very simplistic way, like what's happening is that you're numbing, right? Like you're numbing and it's causing you to lower your inhibitions in, in all ways, depending on the drug, right? But to various degrees. And I think that in that, like I'll, I'll tell you a story that I think of when I think of this. And this in a sense was my story, not as extreme because I was much younger when I went through a lot of this battle, but I always think of this this man. So I had this client and he came to me and he was an alcoholic and he was trying to get sober same kind of path like you know tried rehab all these different things nothing was really working he came to me and he said you know i've i've done everything he, he was in his like mid 40s at the time and i you know first session sat down with him asked him a little bit about his life story and he said you know he was really successful until he was about 25 like really interested in like financial literacy financial independence at a young age actually launched a really successful startup right out of college was making like, you know, great income, all these different things, never drank because he saw his father drink and and struggle a lot with alcohol. And he said he was never going to drink. Got married, had his first kids. And in his late 20s, he was like, you know what? My life's great. Like, why not try? You know, I'm going to have, you know, some, some alcohol. That's fine. But he said the entire time, so much of what was motivating him was like, that he was pushing himself, pushing himself, pressuring himself, pressuring himself. Always felt like he was under the gun, which is part of why he worked so hard. And part of that came from like the way his father conditioned him. And he said his first drink of alcohol, he was like, all of these things that he carried, like these sort of like, you know, social insecurities, all these different dynamics, immediately numbed. Like he was like, oh, they they dropped off. Like, you know, it's very obvious. Like you talk about lowering inhibitions, all these different things but he said he felt more social, more confident, had such a fun time, was able, able to be present in the moment, wasn't feeling like he was under pressure. And so what happens, to talk about the subconscious mind, is like we store things and we get deeply imprinted by by emotional associations. So we, the way the subconscious gets reprogrammed is through repetition plus emotion. But if we are programmed with enough emotion, we can get an immediate imprint. So like you could imagine, just to illustrate that, somebody in a car accident, God forbid, and you know, as they get in the car accident, they get out of the car the next day, they're like, I can't get back in the car. So just the, how emotional that one instance was can create an an immediate imprint at the subconscious level. So you think of addicts, right? Or you think of alcohol, it's, you know, and in his case, what's happening is in that first instance, the positive emotion is so strong about alcohol that it creates this automatic program. Okay. Alcohol equals euphoric, there's something called euphoric recall as well, right? That where we like recall at the, the way we were initially imprinted. It's where you hear terms like chasing the dragon or, you know, it's all representing euphoric recall and subconscious imprinting. And so what happens is going on from that, he, by the time he came to me in his mid forties, he had had three DUIs, no driver's license, lost his business, lost lost his marriage, lost custody of his two children, completely disrupted his life. Like, you know, in, in the downward spiral, like just in absolute horror. But because the subconscious is programmed initially with the imprints from alcohol. And because usually when we have a painful instance, the subconscious doesn't tie it back to the alcohol itself, right? Like if you think of a hangover, for example, you drink, you feel your hangover the next day, your subconscious doesn't tie that to alcohol. It's not getting imprinted with alcohol. It's the next day. There's no emotional association to make back to alcohol, right? Because the time horizon has passed. So for him, he was going through all these painful things. His conscious mind understood they were from alcohol, his subconscious was just governed by those initial imprints and programs because of how powerful and euphoric that first event was. And that's sort of like what's happening to people in terms of programming at a subconscious level is that we are getting imprinted by a drug, by alcohol, by whatever it is, and then unless we actually can use our conscious mind to go in and recondition those associations knowing that they're about alcohol or the drug itself, what happens instead to people is they can just carry those programs for for the long haul, have all these painful events, their subconscious isn't linking it back to the alcohol or to the drugs. And so we just continuously repeat those patterns.
0: So what I heard you say from that, and my takeaway from it are two things. First of all, when somebody experiences one of these emotional sensation events that you're talking about that triggers whatever past trauma they might've already had, is that compounded or does it compound based upon all, any other experience that they might've, that they've had, that they might have repressed. And so. When that one emotional trigger occurs, there might have been a bunch of other incidences that they that they held on to, but they didn't they weren't aware of them. They were just somehow buried deep within their con their context of their their shadow. But then that one trigger occurs. Does that multiply compound itself based upon all the other ones? And it sort of becomes a cascade waterfall of triggers of all the other ones?
1: yeah. so so there's two sort of separate things. So the first thing is every time we do something, the first time we have an experience of something, we form imprints about it, right? And if we've got really strong positive associations, it now becomes a program. And programs are hard to break. So for example, if if I, you know, have my first drink, right? Let's just say, and in that moment, I have such a euphoric experience and I let go of a lot of the trauma I was carrying in that moment. Like I'm not thinking all these painful thoughts about myself. I'm more present in the moment, I'm more self-confident all of my imprints and my programs are actually going to form really positive emotional associations, which is going to get me hooked, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that's happening. The second thing that's happening is after that initial experience, when like we have a program that's so positively associated with the drug, with alcohol, it's actually really difficult to break that program, even if you have painful events that occur after, because your subconscious isn't making those painful events about the, the drug or the alcohol. So let's just use alcohol as a simple example. So let's say I drink, I have that same experience, like, wow, euphoria, like this is such an incredible experience. I make all these positive emotional associations. I'm now programmed to think alcohol is like the best thing ever. Then I can get in car accidents, DUIs, all these other things, God forbid. But, you know, in that case, my mind's not making it about the alcohol. It's making it about the car or what was happening later that day or that night or it, it, the events the are being program differently. The subconscious mind is an association
0: making machine. With they're, make- they're almost manipulating it a bit. Because yeah. you had one because you had one prior experience that was positive. It's manipulating any ensuing events to make it be negative or dissociated with something else.
1: Yes. A- associated with something else. Exactly. So
0: that first so, that first impression becomes sort of the primal impression. And then anything after that becomes, you dissociate it and your subconscious says, oh, no, no, it's not this. It has to be something else.
1: Exactly. Because it's a program. So, once we have a pre existing program about something, mm-hmm. it's actually hard to, like, we have to specifically go in and reprogram that exact thing and learn how to isolate it. Otherwise, consciously, consciously. Yes, consciously and then use tools that actually engage the subconscious mind in the process. But I mean, you can think of all these different sort of examples people have of this, where you have one event, like you think of relationships even, like you meet somebody, you are so infatuated with them, you know, at the get-go, and then time goes on and goes on and goes on, and they could become, you know, a monster after the, the honeymoon stage, or they could, you know, have all these unhealthy patterns come out, but like we get addicted to the initial image we have of that person. It's called euphoric recall is essentially how it's described. And so when we've got really strong imprints at the beginning, that those imprints create the lens that we see the world through because that's sort of the function of the subconscious. And then it's really hard to go back in there and change how we're feeling. And that's why you'll see, for example, like even in like a relationship context, sometimes when people are in abusive relationships, there's always a love-bombing phase first. Then they get hooked on the person. And then time goes on. And then it's often not until there's something that's so traumatic with that person that creates such strong, terrible imprints of, to oppose the original imprints that we'll actually see somebody leave. And people can say for a very long time, and it's all sort of falling under that same umbrella of euphoric recall.
0: These imprints that you're talking about, these sound eerily similar to what I've been exploring lately called epigenetics. And, and so that sounds like that's basically what, what's happening. When you have this initial imprint, or going back to the story you were telling about the gentleman who became an alcoholic and lost his job and all those things. His experience was based upon a genetic context that was imprinted upon him early on from his father being an alcoholic and all the all the associations he made with that. And whether he knew it or not, he might have repressed those, but they were still imprinted upon him. Is that my understanding of how epigenetics actually works?
1: So I would say that he had a genetic predisposition because alcoholism tends to have a genetic predisposition, but epigenetics would more be that like there's a likelihood of expressing that trait based on sort of like the like ancestral trauma that can sort of get passed down like we could s- sort of put it more under that umbrella. I'm just purely talking about the way the subconscious functions. Like we have something and and we go through an experience and the subconscious mind is constantly making associations and it gets programmed through emotional associations. And so when we have a really positive experience, we you know, it's going to sort of activate it can and you can think of it as like an activator of a genetic predisposition, but it's more just that the subconscious is an association-making machine, and if we have these really extreme positive experiences, then that's going to program us that way. Now, because he saw that in his family, you could make the argument that he would have already been carrying a lot of his own trauma around dad being an alcoholic, and so he might have this dynamic of, of you know, he's got these, these different wounds and things that are more likely to cause him to have the, the need to numb or to escape. And we could make the argument that he still has that genetic predisposition or the epigenetic sort of inheritance of that likelihood of things occurring. But I'm just purely talking like the activating mechanism itself is like how strong of emotional imprints we form around something we do.
0: These imprints, I, I'm, I'm going to switch gears for a second. and I, I want to go into relationships because you talk a lot about that. And this whole idea of the fear of being alone or attachment theory and solitude, all these sorts of things. In your extensive work on attachment theory you delve into how early life attachments shape the adult relationships, right? So Mm -hmm. how do you think one's personal attachment style influences their fear of being alone? And I, and I'm speaking from experience because I have someone in my life who who does not have the ability to be alone with themselves. They constantly have to fill their entire life with activities, being around friends. They always have to be doing something. They can't ever just sit in silence and have this sort of self-awareness that, you talked about observing versus what was it you said something or observing that you said yeah, observing versus identifying. Yeah. so they they don't have the ability to just sit and observe. So how much is their childhood responsible for forming the basis of this context now today?
1: Yeah, I would say tremendously responsible. So we go through childhood, and another way we sort of get these imprints is like when when we have trauma, so trauma not necessarily being these like extreme traumas, but just something we can't properly emotionally process or comprehend. The mind seeks certainty at a subconscious level. So what we do is we make meaning out of it. So like let's say, for example, I'll, I'll speak to, you know, this maybe person in your life. Let's say as a child, they grew up in an environment where like they had really loving parents, but the parents worked a lot and they had she had to go stay with the grandparents, or there was a lot of inconsistency that happened, or a parent left the household. If there's any either real or perceived abandonment that takes place, then what's gonna end up happening is that person's gonna have this the mind gives meaning to things so the subconscious will go okay well I'm going to be abandoned or I'm feeling left alone and so when we give this meaning and it has strong emotion especially if there's repetition of it even if it's small things over time we start to form these ideas about ourselves i am the person that will be abandoned i am the person that that will be alone i am the person that is not good enough or rejected or excluded if i don't have all these social friends and this big network and so you know, what happens is based on the way we interpret our childhood, it creates these subconscious belief systems that we have about ourselves. We call these our core wounds. And when these core wounds are activated, we'll do everything we can to avoid that. So somebody could feel, you know, this fear of being alone again if they felt alone in childhood or this fear of being abandoned if they felt abandoned in childhood. So we do all these things to cope from them as adults, right? To, yeah. to fine-tune all of our coping mechanisms, make sure we're never alone, we're always busy because we're actually you know, objectively sitting with yourself isn't a scary thing, but if we have all this stored negative emotion around it because as a child it felt sad, it felt defeating, it felt lonely, then we'll do all these things as adults to escape those things. So she might be the anxiously attached person, perhaps.
0: I want to explore her in a second, if if you may, because none of the things that you said did she go through? Okay. I, I must have led on to something because it is a she, but I, I, don't, I don't recall saying that. so interesting that you picked up on that. I myself, fit the criteria of everything you just said a second ago, I grew up and, and I've, I've been working on this for years now, but I grew up in that abandonment lifestyle. My parents, I'm one of 12 kids. So I didn't ever get any wow. attention from my parents. It, like that was a fight for just, you know, a hug. Yeah. And my dad was, my dad was highly abusive. And I've talked about this. I won't beat that dead horse, but my mother didn't really have a role in my life in the sense that, you know, she, she was just basically a transporter and a feeder and a baby birther. like She didn't have any authority or autonomy. And and for whatever reason, I grew up with this whole idea of scarcity and abandonment. And I didn't realize that until I started doing this work. And I don't really quite understand where it all originated from. But I'm wondering if you wouldn't pretend to be sort of like my counselor here for a second. And, And if I come to you with this sort of idea that I have this idea of, of abandonment. I have this fear of abandonment of like, whether it's in relationships, whether it's with friendships, whether it's with scarcity around my job, whatever it is. And then I've dealt with all these things now, but in your perspective and in your context and expertise, if I were to come to you with that, how would you sort of diagnose if that's the right way to ask that question, where my trauma, my context originally stemmed from?
1: Yeah. Okay. Ask me some questions. It's a big question. Okay. So, can I give you some some in order to ask you any questions, I have to give you context first. So, so first thing, so there's four attachment styles. Every person has an attachment style. There's a securely attached style, and securely attached styles are they grow up with healthy emotional modeling for trust, for communication, for expression of emotion, for relying on others and allowing themselves to be relied on. So they see a lot of healthy that human dynamics and relationships. Most people nowadays are not securely attached. Then we have three insecure styles on one end of the continuum.
0: So see, securely is the win-win. It's, it's, it's like the yeah. ideal scenario, yeah. There's and, no, there's no downside to being securely attached. Like you can't be overly secure and I'm just. Exactly. exactly. Okay.
1: Yeah. Right. And so, and, and a lot of it's like, you know, we can dig into like the nitty gritty. I don't want to go on for too long about it, but like they have a lot of approach oriented behaviors from caregivers. So as children, when they cry, caregivers come try to suit them as they get older and they express their needs like let's say a secure child says is crying because they want candy at 11 p.m like the parent might come to the child and say honey I know you want candy, but it's late. You know, if you eat everything tomorrow, and we get you to school on time and you eat all your dinner, we can maybe have a little bit of candy tomorrow. So even though the need is completely, you know, irrational from an objective point of view, ch- children shouldn't be eating candy at 11 p.m., yeah. the caregiver will still validate the need, express empathy towards the need, negotiate, communicate about the need. So these children learn all these like healthy emotional expression, reliance, confidence in self to express emotion, to express needs learned that it's safe to have boundaries as well. I mean, there's a lot of like secure attached behaviors. Statistically securely attached people end up in loving relationships that last significantly more than insecurely attached individuals. Then we have our insecure ones. We have three of them. You can think of them as sort of opposite ends of the continuum. You're going to be the middle one, I can tell you right now. We'll come back to that. So you're going to, so on one side, and you may relate to some of these behaviors, but you'll probably relate to a little bit of both, my guess would be. On one side, We have anxious preoccupied. So anxious preoccupied attachment style is the fear of abandonment attachment style. Usually there's a lot of inconsistency in childhood. The funny thing is that anxious preoccupied stuff can also really fly under the radar where like, you know, the parents are really loving, but they work a lot. And, and, you know, there can be these small things because remember, it's repetition and emotion that programs the subconscious and makes those imprints. So they can – it doesn't have to be this huge overt abandonment trauma. It can just be these like small things over time that build up. And so this individual, if there's a lot of inconsistency in the home, they grow up to fear abandonment, fear being alone, fear this dynamic of of feeling not good enough, rejected, excluded. They tend to like really need to be around people all the time. They, They, you know, because it's their way of coping. And you'll see as a general rule that they really struggle with boundaries and they don't have much of a strong sense of self. Their sense of self is largely established through their external relationships to others. Now on the flip end of the continuum, you have a dismissive avoidant. The, they're the opposite. They usually grow up with a lot, a lot of childhood emotional neglect. Again, it can definitely be something that flies under the radar. It doesn't have to be really overt. Like it can be foods on the table, there's structure, but, you know, the child comes home from school and he says, Mom, I had a bad day. And the mom's like, Oh, don't cry. Be strong. You know, don't be weak. You know, big men don't cry. You know, there can be a lot of messaging that's just like complete avoidance of emotional discussion or emotional attunement. Um, because the caregivers are unavailable or actual shaming of, of the emotions itself. So they, it constitutes as this emotional neglect. Because a child growing up in that home is completely wired for emotional connection, what's going to end up happening, because all children are wired for it, is they constantly yearn for it and they constantly feel rejected by it. And children can't understand that it's not about them. They make it mean, they make it mean usually like, oh, something's wrong with me that, that I can't get my needs met. So they usually carry a lot of internalized shame if they go through childhood emotional neglect. So as adults, These are the individuals in relationships that you get close to them, everything's great. As soon as they're too close, they need to run away because they're scared of being vulnerable like that again, and they assume it's only going to lead to bad outcomes. These individuals will like keep a lot of space from people. They don't like being vulnerable. They often don't really know how to emotionally connect for long periods of time, and they'll sabotage a lot of more in-depth relationships. Then we have a third. The third is the fearful avoidant. This is what I was as well. The fearful avoidant usually grows up in turmoil. And so it can be, you know, in my case, for example, my parents just had really extreme fights a lot, like child service would, would come to my home, like just all these sort of chaotic things. But, you know, you'll see other constituents, like you said, like if you had a father who was really abusive, that would constitute, you know, if, you know, one example I often give is like a, if a parent is an alcoholic. So like, let's say, for example, this is how like fearful avoidance forms. You can imagine all the different scenarios, but fearful avoidance grow up in a home where let's say mom's an alcoholic, for example, and the child comes home from school. And one day mom's drinking and she's in a great mood. She's a little happy. She's loving. She's kind of cuddly and affectionate. Another day mom's drinking. She's really angry. She's angry drunk. She's like, you know, abusive, harsh, critical, cruel with her words. Another day she's sobering up and she feels terribly guilty about her actions. So she's kind, she's loving, she's sweet. Another day she's sobering up, but she's going through withdrawals and she's just having like a terrible time, grumpy, really harsh, really critical. There is never a way for that child to create a proper attachment strategy because everything is chaos all the time. The anxious attachment, when their parents are there, they're loving, so they can count on that. The dismissive avoidant, the parents are emotionally unavailable all the time, so they can count on that. The fearful avoidant, you're constantly walking on eggshells. You never know when the other shoe is going to drop. There's chaos. There's all these different things. But fearful avoidants get programmed to think that love is good because sometimes mom is nice and mom is sweet and there's good moments, but love is also pain. And there's also really painful, harsh, scary moments at the same time. Usually the fearful avoidant attachment style happens the most with the more trauma there is in the home. And it causes somebody to have both the anxious and avoidant side. So they'll have times where they feel that abandonment, not wanting to be alone, and other times where they need to, especially when they're triggered or under stress, shut everybody out, shut down, push away. And they're usually the person as an adult that's like really hot and cold in relationships. Until, of course, you know, we can do the work on these things because these mm-hmm. things are also changeable and healable. And it sounds like th- does that one relate to you a little bit more than fearful avoidant?
0: I, I originally was relating to dismissive avoidant. But as you started talking more about fearful avoidant, I'm that one. and i and I already knew that as well because I'd been studying this as well. Thank you. I've been studying some of your work, so uh, and reading your book and all that. So i, I w- I'm very much in line with three and four. Chaos was the norm in my family. And while I don't think there was any alcoholism or drugs involved, I, you know, I, I've, well, I've noticed.
1: Abuse is even more severe. Heavy
0: abuse, yeah. psycho- psychological abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. And you, you mentioned something that really, really resonated with me. You, I could never form any sort of attachment theory to anything because my mom was unavailable yeah. and was only there to console me after something. Like, you know, just hugging and loving me. Um, she tried her best. But even that would get dismissed by her husband, my father, yes. if she did too much doting on me. And and my dad did other than that sort of stuff that you just talked about all the time, which was, you know, dismissing my emotions. I wasn't allowed to cry. I'd actually get beaten if I cried more. Like all kinds of crazy shit. So,
1: yeah.
0: all right. So, we, we've diagnosed me and I, I want to go back to this person we were talking about at the beginning. So, because it's one of my children. I'm just going to tell you that. She cannot be alone. So since we're talking about this sort of stuff, how much has my subconscious or my epigenetics or whatever it is, that imprint that I've taken on, had an impact on who she is and compounded by the fact that she and her, my mother and I, we're divorced. We got divorced when she was five, four, between four and five. And so you mentioned, I forget which one it was. um, Anxious? Yeah. Anxious. Yeah. Because there was no, there was a lot of inconsistency in her parenting. How much has that played a role in who she is today in this, this attachment style that she has around never being able to be alone?
1: Um, Probably a massive role.
0: It's everything. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like, because, you know, how we get programmed at the deepest level is we get programmed through what we see repeatedly, what we hear repeatedly and what we have firsthand experiences of. So she can have a genetic predisposition or an epigenetic, you know, sort of trajectory, like a thread going through there, but it's ultimately activated by a person's experiences, right? Like, I just want to say one other thing before I finish that is that like trauma is passed down because trauma is like almost contagious in its own way, right? We can't help it. But like the best thing you could ever do as a parent is heal yourself. And so like the fact that even though you might've contributed to that, because that's how life goes, the fact that you're now on a path where you're able to actually, like you're healing yourself, you're doing this work, you're out in the world doing this work when she's ready to like, take on some of the tools and listen and hear, you know, that's the best gift you can give to somebody, in my opinion, because you can take somebody who's just securely attached. And you asked me earlier, like, what are the downsides? The only real downside of being securely attached is sometimes you can lack true emotional resilience, because sometimes through pain, through hardship, we build that resilience. And if you can take somebody, there are certain attachment style that's insecure, then they learn tools and they do healing. They have that like resilience of being that insecure attachment style who's been through some stuff. It creates more depth, more resiliency. And then when they heal it because we can become earned secure, like we can actually yeah. become secure through tools. Now all of a sudden you get the best of both worlds. So I just, I just want you to know it's not like this terrible thing. There can be you know, beauty that really comes through it as well.
0: What's interesting to me is I, I mentioned at the outset, I have two kids. Their attachment styles from my perspective are markedly different. And one's only three years older than the other. But they grew up, in theory with the same sort of backdrop as uh, both of them together i I raised both of my girls since we were divorced primarily exclusively so they they always had sort of the same type of parenting for the most part but they're markedly different and i wondered i've been sort of and 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 i she's now seeing a therapist just because you know it's something that i think is i want to be proactive about it not that she's she's a wonderful child she just can't be alone and so I've, i've often wondered There's a direct dichotomy between the two of them and how I've raised them as it pertains to phones and social media. I've often wondered this cultural lens on solitude and how much of a role our modern society in their attempt to often emphasize the idea of being connected and and social media and this constant communication and we're constantly turned on and we're constantly being bombarded. How much has that cultural backdrop Amplify the fear for her of being alone coupled with the attachment style that she developed Because her older sister has does not really use her phone and, and never really has but she's like constantly glued to it so i'm wondering like Is there a direct correlation between what I just described this cultural lens on solitude and social media and always being on? combined with the attachment style that she developed at an early age because of, of you know everything that happened how much has that played a role in who she's become in her style right now?
1: Yeah. So it's a great question. Um, it's very common for children to have different attachment styles in the home because the age in which they have different experiences and how we respond to it is meaningful, right? How we respond to what gives us relief is meaningful. So you could have, like, it, it makes sense as well now that you've just mentioned in there that you were divorced and then you were the primary caregiver. It can create, like, a bit of an abandonment wound, just if, like, the the mother from the home is is gone, right? Like, or is not there sort of secondary because, you know, in utero, there's that, that sort of element. It's beautiful and powerful that you decided to make that decision. And, and I imagine you're an amazing parent and, and especially with all the work that you're doing, but it just, it, it's just inevitable, right? People go through divorces all the time and like it, it can create that sort of abandonment wound. Now, I think the cultural backdrop would be a little bit more secondary because generally our attachment cells is formed most in the home, of course, that will still create programming for sure. But you can see, like, we have a lot of dismissive avoidance in the world too, right? Like, you know, my my husband, for example, was a dismissive avoidant. And my husband, like, he has never had an Instagram. He has, like, an old Facebook from decades ago. Like, he's just He's, not a, a, he's
0: an AOL user.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, like, he <laughs> like, doesn't care about anything to, you know. But that's also because, like, his relief as a child because he went through some degree of, like, just neglect. Like his he he was actually raised by his uh just his father as well, who was a great oh. father, but unfortunately just had to work all the time just because, you know, like single parent, right? It's really tough. Yeah. And so so my husband, you know, when I met him was was still dismissive avoidant. And, you know, his way of sort of navigating the world, even though we also grew up not as much as the generation now, but we also grew up in the the time of like, oh, cell phones were there and when we're in high school and all that, like it was just something that he – like he gained relief from childhood forms of neglect by literally being on his own, by being really independent, by just like not needing anyone. And so like that's something where like he never uses his phone. So it depends as well like how the person adapts and what gives them a sense of relief. I do think it's really important to have a sense of self and to sit in solitude. Sorry, go ahead. What are you going to say?
0: That piece about your husband and how he developed this independence and this, this style all to his own, because he didn't have to rely upon somebody else. He was forced to rely upon himself. That's very similar to my upbringing. I was sort of just basically left to do whatever I wanted to do. And I, I just developed my own style, but at the same time, while that does champion good qualities and resilience and determination and discipline and and all those things, there's a, there's a polar side to that. Like there's a, there's a shadow side to that. Correct?
1: Yes. And it's that it, it can foster something called counterdependency. So we have codependency, which is the anxious, right? That never want to be alone, always want to be in relationships. And then we have counterdependency, which is like fear of relying on other people, fear of opening up. fear. Of, and then what we're actually looking for that securely attached people use is healthy interdependence. And, you know, that was for me a journey. Like I was also, so I was fearful avoidant like you. Fearful avoidant very much has that avoidant side. Fearful avoidant is the middle run, right? So it actually has both sides. can fear abandonment, but can also fear being trapped or overwhelmed. And that's why there's sort of like the, the hot and cold on and off kind of dynamic there. But so you'll, of course, relate to that side. But when it comes, like it's so valuable and so important to have a strong sense of self. Like it's truly important. But when that sense of self is more developed from fear instead of from truth those are two different things so if i know my sense of self and i enjoy my own company because i've got healthy mm-hmm. dynamics there that's good if i you know it's something i had to work through was like being able to rely on people at times you know i had to mm-hmm. open up to people and practice letting people in and actually receiving from people because that was really Same. scary Same. and so it, it's the difference between like truth or fear mm-hmm. like i'm independent because i love independence and i enjoy my own company in my own time. And there can be elements of truth there, but also like, what are the parts that are like, I'm just too afraid to really show myself to anybody to really be vulnerable.
0: I was, I was raising my hand because I shared those same qualities. I also noticed early in, in, in my journey of the last few years that I had become a micromanager. I would just like, I'm just going to do it myself. Yeah. And, and it yeah. really, really yielded itself in my business early on because I was like, I'm the CEO. I'm, d- yeah. I'm just going to do it myself. And I refuse. And like, I would hire people, oh, yeah. but they just couldn't do it quick enough. They couldn't do it fast enough. They couldn't do it the way I did it. And I was like, <laughs> ah, fuck it. I'm just going to take it over. And what happened is like. It just became self capitulating like the more I did it, the more I pushed people away, the more I would lose good employees, the more I was like getting buried because I couldn't actually take on all the things. But oh, but I was like, oh, no, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work through this because I'm disciplined and I had to stand on my own all these years. I am fucking if anyone else is going to tell me I can't because I can fucking do it. And so like meanwhile, yeah yeah meanwhile Meanwhile, like shit's falling everywhere (laughs) business is going to shit no (laughs) one's getting called back I'm like zero follow-up in my business and it's like so yeah so I, I I totally resonate with that and
1: and meanwhile your relationship to it I went through the exact same thing in a way on a smaller scale when I first ran my practice I was so scared to hire anyone at the beginning and it's because like if you feel so out of control in childhood well, how do you cope as an adult? Well, try to control everything. Try to make sure you're always in control. Don't leave other aspects of your life in other people's control because every time you did that as a as a child and, and things were, you know, other people had control over your life, it sucked. Yeah. So instead, it's like the way of trying to cope, but actually the the true healing is to heal the fear of being out of control core wounds and learn healthy interdependency where you can give and receive.
0: So this is only supposed to be an hour phone call. So forgive me for trying to get through stuff fast because I have a lot of questions. So I want to quickly go back real quickly, my daughter. So if you had to, if you had to give me sort of a one word response or just a short response on what's the best thing that she could be doing right now, or I can be doing as a father to support her in the sense of trying to get her to not have this fear of being alone and this fear of not always having to be doing something fastidiously. Like what's the one thing, if there was, I know there's many, but what is one thing I could say, this is the thing we should start trying to do.
1: How old is she again?
0: She'd be, she's almost 15, should be 15 in February. Yeah.
1: Listen, two things. Number one, reprogram subconscious core wounds. We have like free YouTube content about that, stuff like that. I can give you a quick breakdown of that in a minute if you'd like, but I, I'll try to make it brief. Reprogram core wounds, help her meet all of her unmet needs. From the painful time in childhood when the divorce happened. So, if she felt like she didn't have understanding, if she felt unseen, unheard, if she felt alone, if she, you know, any way that you can help meet those deeply unmet needs repetitively over time and encourage her to meet those needs on her own while reprogramming core wounds. I mean, those are like the two major pillars to, there's like five, six major pillars to healing attachment trauma. Those two are the biggest by far.
0: You talk a lot about breaking free from these subconscious patterns that we've developed but how, how does she navigate or how do we let's just switch the make it benign how do we navigate this the discomfort and the backlash that inevitably sort of rears itself when we start pushing against this sort of norm of everything we've always known how do we navigate that because it's not going to be easy it's not it's painful like as someone who's 15 years old or someone who's in their 40s like the same thing happens like trying to change everything that i've learned about my that i've learned over the years and everything that i've been traumatized and that has had a an effect on me and trying to undo all of that what's the best way to navigate that as you encounter and you become self-aware of this pain this misery that this that this can cause like realizing that you are dealing with something that needs to be dealt with
1: yeah well i think the first thing is that it's never super comfortable to go inward at the beginning. But it's where all the healing comes from, right? It's like when we actually have the ability to build a relationship to ourselves. Like I always say to people, as cliche as this sounds, like the healing happens when we become our own parents. And so when we can, like if we have different core wounds that we have, like if they're the fear of being abandoned or being alone, what you'll see that happens is every time we have these wounds from childhood, we, har- we harness them against ourselves over and over again. So like yeah. if someone's neglected they're emotionally as children, they grow up to be until they do the work the ones that neglect their own emotions, right? If somebody feels abandoned in childhood, they constantly abandon the relationship to themselves. You can see that, for example, in your daughter always needing to do things from the outside in, terrified to be alone with herself, but she's constantly in this chronic state of self-abandonment. If we feel trapped in childhood, we usually end up, you know, having poor boundaries. And then Never, you know, being able to say no to things in our life makes us feel like we're trapped in it. Or, you know, th- these things get harnessed against ourselves. So what we have to be able to do is be like, what are our biggest unmet needs from childhood and our biggest woes? And where are we actually still react like reusing, I call it re-traumatization. We're re-traumatizing ourselves by exhibiting the same patterns in relationship to self. And then step three is, okay, how do we change that? Like, what can we do on a daily basis that leverages repetition plus emotion? Because that's how we rewire repetition and emotion to change this. So like you know if somebody's abandoning themselves all the time, like actually learning to do you know self-work courses or learning to read about themselves, read books that help them connect to the relationship to themselves and doing something repetitively so we actually build that out and it, it feels uncomfortable at first but after about the 21 day mark is how long it takes yeah. to really rewire new patterns, we'll actually start to really enjoy those things and so we have to sort of persist through that chronic, 21 days of discomfort at first until we start to feel some sort of profound relief. And that's when our world changes in, in usually a really profound
0: way. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation that it, it, it wasn't scalable for you. So you started getting into these online forums and, and the work that you're doing, but do you still see clients in an individual capacity?
1: No, I, um, I got way too busy. I mean, we have like just under 10,000 students in our school and I do four webinars and we I help run all the business side of things. Um, we have a big amazing team as well. Like we've got lots of employees, but I was too busy and I had to put like a hard stop because, you know, one person would say, well, why are you seeing this person and not this person? So it was just sort of easier to say, okay, I'm, I'm wrapping up my practice for now. I do love it and I do miss it but because it's beautiful work and, and sort of guiding people through things is really powerful. But, um, but I get to have like a lot of hands-on time inside of our school too.
0: Well, I feel really lucky because you've been doing some of that private work right now on this call. So thank you. Uh,
1: I'm, I'm more sharing and <laughs> teaching stuff, but I'm glad that it was
0: helpful. Why do you think society, which especially, I guess, let me say rephrase that. Why do you think a Western society that prides itself on this whole idea of progress and individuality, it's so reluctant. It's almost like a taboo topic with a lot of people to embrace this, this whole idea of exploring and harnessing your shadow mind. Why, why do you think this Western society in particular It's so reluctant to embrace that.
1: I think it starts from the top down. I think that there's a lot of different functions in society that unfortunately are like a little too profit focused or greed based. And I think that, yes, there's this, oh, be an individual. I mean, listen, I have my own really in-depth theories that would take us way down the rabbit hole, but, but, um, you know, I think there's this element of like individuality, but I don't think it's individuation so you know okay be an individual i think it's more about like hey be selfish i think there's elements of conditioning that happen like think of our media like like it, it's all like <laughs> everything is about you know sending in positive emotional associations for people to things that are about you know being selfish to to various degrees and and i think that appeals on some level to people when there's trauma but i think that that you know if we had better messaging around like, let's say in school systems, like if the school system was different and we actually learned about like who we are, you know, if we actually did that deep in our work, deep in our work is selfless because you have to do hard work within the relationship to yourself and be radically honest with who you are and your, your faults in order to grow. But if we could change the school top down kind of stuff, like there's no emotional literacy taught in schools. There's no financial literacy taught in schools. There's a lot of things that are missing. And instead I think we learn about theory of a lot of things that doesn't really apply to growth in in powerful ways. So there's just no positive messaging in any kind of institution we spend a lot of time working within that's encouraging a lot of this stuff.
0: I'm glad you said that because I don't think anything you just said in terms of the education system is by accident. I think that's very purposefully repressing people's ability to be cognitively critical thinkers, self-aware, all the different introspective tools to become a better human. That stuff is repressed and and frowned upon and you're just taught basically in my opinion. And I'm I'm watching it. I don't know if you have kids, but I've watched my kids through the public school system and I've, they're in a new school s- system now, which I'm very happy with. Um, it's still public, but um, I moved them intentionally because the programming that was being embedded in their, in their minds while they sit for eight hours in a row, a militarized row, just wrote memorizing and parroting back nonsensical theories and nonsensical data and stuff that they're probably never going to use instead of, collectively learning to become better humans and think and yeah. critically analyze stuff and creatively analyze things. So I don't think any of it is by accident at all. And I
1: think, I think something dangerous, like, and maybe dangerous is too dramatic of a word, but something that like, you know, cause I work in the relationship realm a lot and like you see ab- tons of people in abusive relationships. Like there's a difference between being an obedient person and being a good person. Like, oh and yes. the school system really conditions obedience, but like, it's always the obedient people that fall prey to really challenging dynamics because they're out of tune with their own emotions. They're not able to like consider their own boundaries if you're constantly so obedient. And so obedience really does, you know, disintegrate critical thinking skills for a lot of people. And then when red flags go off, alarm bells go off, you meet somebody who's extremely unhealthy, whether that be an individual or an institution that you're, you know, in relationship to in some form. Those things have been sort of taken away by the school system in in different forms, I think.
0: Can we please do another show in the near future on obedience? I have so (laughs) many things to discuss around this. I was sitting in the airport flying back from Boston yesterday and just sort of marveling. You talk about the effect of obedience versus being good. I mean, take a look at the last three and a half, four years. If that's not a paragon of an example for what obedience can do to a society, I don't know what is. And I'm not going to go too deep into that. I think you understand my reference. But I was sitting in the airport yesterday sort of watching the amount of people that have now taken back to wearing masks in the airport versus the amount of people who are not and 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 I don't want to go too far down this hole, but it really just kind of it really brought to the fore with me how many people are truly just obedient regardless of the narrative, and they're only basing their their conclusive evidence based upon the whatever it is they're being told to do. I just marvel at it like i sat on, I sat on the airplane and the woman one row across from me, and i just I, I'm sorry that I just can't really. Can't really process this intellectually. She she had on like three or four different masks on her face. And but then when it came time to eat, you know, she pulled them all off and just sat there drinking and eating and, and doing all of her things. And I'm like thinking, how do you process that one of those is going to be more safer than the other? It doesn't make any sense to me. But the the just,
1: restaurants, I don't know what it was like in the US, but in Canada, you, you had to like wear a mask to walk into the restaurant, sit yeah. down, uh, take the mask off. Yeah put it on the table where all this stuff is going on. I mean, listen, there's a lot of weird stuff going on for sure. It is Um, crazy
0: to me, but yeah. It breaks
1: my heart for people who feel like, you know, in whatever terms, like I, I say to people who come in our school, like, people come in, they take all these, these courses, blah, blah, blah. I say to people, it doesn't matter what I think. Like I constantly encourage people like, Hey, I can tell you all these tools. I can tell you all these things, try them on and see if they work for you. Like, I really think individuation and being able to like attune to your own emotions, the way you feel your own needs, your own boundaries. Like these are such powerful life skills. They help us in like being in the the right career that is meaningful to us. They help us form the right relationships, get out of the way of harmful things, not fall prey to systems that are there to I think sometimes manipulate and take advantage of people. Like it really allows, you know, so we have to attune to ourselves instead of being so externally focused, like learn to really attune to ourselves and learn that like sometimes it's okay to go against Whatever the the societal norm is of what's being accepted, if we think for ourselves individually, there's something that makes sense and is healthier or better. And so again, I just can't stress enough like how many people I would see in like abusive dynamics, in, you know, sometimes in the workplace, sometimes, you know, in all different forms, because they got so conditioned, like just be in the box, do what everybody says, and then they lose the ability to really question and consider things and trust themselves. Like self-trust is one of the big casualties in that dynamic as well
0: yeah it is quite amazing i want to talk about you for a second because you've helped thousands of people in in, in all of your work that you're doing and helping them confront their inner shadows and I, w- I want to flip the script a little bit as it pertains to you can you share any instances or have you ever encountered any instances when your own shadows came to the fore during this professional journey whether you were helping people or were you putting together class together just in your day-to-day life how have you addressed it and harnessed it so that you can learn from it and become better from it.
1: I would say like shadow work was so powerful for me. Like that was one of my favorite things. I like when you work with people too, like on a daily basis, it helps you like do shadow work all the time because you'll see things within other people that you realize are representations of yourself. But I'll tell one quick story, which is the first time I ever really I was just learning about shadow work and I I um was working in this place while I was in school and and it was called York Medical Center. And there was a guy there and he was very like dismissive, like very like. Um, I'd come in and be like, hey, good morning. It was only he and I that worked there during the same work hours all the time. And like, I'm like a friendly person. I like to make friends. Like, and I was like, I'm going to work with this person 24 seven. Like, I, he should end up being my friend in some way. And, and I would always be like, good morning. How are you? Like, you know, how's your day? And he'd always be like, it was fine. It's fine. It's good. Like, just really, and like, no, like, you know, and so after a while, I started to get kind of triggered by it. And, you know, and I was doing shadow work. There's all different tools you can use for shadow work. But the one I was working on was, you know, looking at the thing I'm triggered by in this person, like what is the trait I'm labeling? And then where do I express this trait in different areas of my life? So I was like, okay, dismissive. He's dismissive. And that was what was triggering me. And I looked and I was like, okay, where am I dismissive to myself? And I realized I was still really dismissive Mm -hmm. of my own boundaries sometimes and my own feelings. So it's like, okay, that's mine. I'm taking it personally because it is personal to me. It's living within me. Then I was like, how am I dismissive to him, the person you're judging? Where am I dismissive? Right? Where's the trait in my shadow, you know, in this form? And I looked at it and I was like, oh, (laughs) as soon as he's dismissive to me, I'm dismissive back. I'm like, oh, he doesn't want to talk. Fine. I won't talk to you either. (laughs) And then I looked for where am I dismissive to someone else in my life? And at the time, I was actually really starting to work on the relationship I have with my dad. Like we were really trying to improve the relationship. And we had a bit of a rocky chapter at one point in life. And And I realized like he, my dad was like constantly reaching out to me and like making an effort. And then I would just be dismissive at times and just like dismiss. And I was like, wow, I'm making someone I love and care about I'm making my dad feel like how this person's making me feel. And it was like, okay, like, so what I love about that exercise for shadow work, looking at what the trait is you're judging and then where do I do this to myself, to the person I'm judging or to someone else and I'm not recognizing it, is that. It helps you get this like three sixty point of view of like okay I think that I don't have this trait it's I may not be expressing it in the same form as this person but it's still also mine and it's just repressed there nonetheless and so man I've done so much shadow work though I've had so many shadows I could tell you countless stories but yeah always trying to to grow and and continue down that path
0: it, it's often really kind of surprises me how much of the problems that we have with other people whether whether it be just us (laughs) are just our own reflection that we're sort of like pushing out totally yeah it, it blows me away and i never really understood that before and as soon as i came to terms with that concept i was able to change a lot of different paradigms in my life that were causing me pain or distress or whatever it was that that wasn't promissory. So it's interesting. This has been a really cool conversation. Our last part of the show, and thank you for all of your insights. It's been really brilliant to hear your, your I knew it was going to be, but I'm just, you're you're confirming and validating everything I thought it was going to be. I like to do a little thing with all of my guests. It's sort of a hot seat and they're questions that are centered around you, your world, your ethos, all the things you're doing, but you don't get a lot of chance to answer them. So just, you know, first first response pops to head. You wanna play a little game with me?
1: Yeah, totally.
0: All right, cool. So i prepared a few notes on some things, but um, my first question is sort of, if you had to switch your attachment style, because you've, you've talked about four different attachment styles and a, a variety of different things associated with that. If you had to switch your attachment style for just one month, what would that be and why?
1: Oh, wow. Okay, so I was fearful avoidant. I'm now secure after a lot of work, but have been secure for maybe the last like 10 years or so. I would go to, I would go to anxious preoccupied because I've done a lot of, like I have a really strong sense of self. If anything. I sort of have the ability to like do really well being on my own and like have that sort of space. Mm. So I would say that because anxious was like maybe the attachment style I kind of related to the least in certain ways over the last few years, I feel like that'd be the most place that would offer me growth.
0: So, yeah. That's great. I like that answer. What is one relationship truth that is widely accepted by society, but you wholeheartedly disagree with?
1: Oh man. I like, I don't, I don't know how to say it in, as one truth, but I honestly really disagree with a lot of the like, like this idea of like masculine and feminine energy and that like, Women should just be in their total feminine. Men should just be in their total masculine. Well, I actually really am a big firm believer in like the nuclear family. And I think there's a destruction mm. of the modern family happening mm. right now. And like, not that like we can't have different ways that that looks like, but that <laughs> it's like everybody should just not even bother having kids or having exactly. a family. I think we we really need partnership in our lives in whatever way that looks. And I think that's healthy for people anyways. But I do think that the missing piece there is that people may have more like masculine or feminine energy, but I actually believe that like our job as human beings is to foster like an equal, not equal balance. It'll always sort of lean one way, but foster a healthy balance, a healthy relationship to both sides of our own energy. Absolutely. And then bond with other people who are also whole and empowered. And I think there's this funny narrative and it's, sometimes it's in circles where there's other interesting information there, but like, I'm like, that's so wrong that somebody should just be polarized because if if we don't have healthy balance of both aspects of ourselves, like if, if, A man, for example, can never even tap into like being emotionally available or tap into his emotions or things like that or his nurturing, compassionate side. Like how does that show up as a father? How does that show up with with children? How does that sustain a long-term relationship? And vice versa, if a woman doesn't have the ability to sort of like be strong sometimes or be ambitious or go on her own and have that independence and Mm -hmm. directness, then it's just those things, those ideas end up sort of destroying relationships long-term, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, if there was if there was one self-evident truth and I'll get back to your questions because I know you're excited about them. There was one self-evident truth I learned of of being a single father raising two girls is that the critical need for that partnership, the nuclear family that you referenced and and being able to have. I don't really I don't agree with you. Sorry, I, I do agree with you. I don't agree with what a lot of people say, like having this perfect balance, because it's never really a perfect balance. It's you're going to be moving the scales up and down between the feminine energy and the masculine energy. It's just every situation and every construct requires some sort of different response. But if there, if I had one argument to make for a nuclear family, a marriage, it would be able to be able to provide your children, not only the consistency of, of that space, but that masculine and feminine energy both mm-hmm. being cultivated in, in the children's lives. and Absolutely. and I, I, Yeah, so...
1: At the foundation of, like, you have a secure space to go back to. You can trust, like, parents. You have somebody to go to, to rely on, like, all of those things. I think they teach, you know, so many valuable things. And I think that as a parent, you know, I'm not even a parent yet. My husband and I are going to get quickly started on that journey, like, next year, probably. But, like, as a parent, you're forced to unwind your ego, right? As a parent, you're forced to to self-observe self-regulate like your children are going to trigger you sometimes like there's there's tremendous
0: not sometimes all the time (laughs) it's not sometimes it's every single day something happens you're like i have no idea how to parent this and so being able to have a partner in your nuclear family that if no other reason you can share the burden but having a different approach to things because i have a very specific way of how I handle stress and how I handle drama and all those things, but having a partner that has a unique perspective on it, it exposes the the children to sort of see those unique takes and be able to take that on for their own developmental purposes. So next question, if you were stranded somewhere with somebody and this person was a fearful avoidant, what's the first thing you would do to build trust with them?
1: Transparency. Oh, I love transparency. Contacts, transfer, Yeah,
0: <laughs> all fearful
1: avoidance too. <laughs> like openness, transparency, and like connecting. I can't people. read
0: your mind, man. Just tell me.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I would say that for sure.
0: I love that. If you if you had uh, the ability to give everybody that you work with or everyone on the planet a, a relationship superpower, what would that relationship superpower be?
1: I would say the ability to question the meaning we give to.
0: And so, you're good at these hot seats.
1: Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It's like if we say, oh, somebody didn't call me back, it's because I'm not good enough. It's because I'm going to be abandoned. It's because we always jump to our own pre ex- experienced yeah. conclusions because there are programs. But the ability yeah. to really question those, I think, goes a really long way.
0: That's a really good answer. If you had the ability to reinvent the idea of what a rom- romantic commitments are, we've been talking about nuclear families and relationships and feminine and masculine balance. If you had the ability to reinvent the idea of what romantic commitment is today, what's one element you would drastically change?
1: I would make there be more vulnerability. I think that we're like part of what we talk about in society is like, you know, this sort of like independence, individuation, all these different things. But in proper commitment, it's required that there is vulnerability. Like both people have to get to see and know each other. And I think in in the the idea of commitment we have today, it's like you know two people get in a marriage, settle in. And I would also say that people have to be able to grow together on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. It's so easy for people to grow apart, apart because they don't keep like I'm. I my husband and I were like we go on a date night every single week. If we're busy we do a date night at home but it's like allocated time and we ask each other like questions about life and how because we're growing up together you know we've been yeah. together almost 10 years and we will change and and so i really believe we also have to like express that vulnerability and we have to keep learning each other
0: but there is an end cap would you say and i'm getting off top, but there is an end cap in a relationship where at some point you just have to say we can't work on this. We're, 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 just going in didactic directions. Like that. Oh, like if know. it's a
1: bad relationship kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And like, not everything is fixable. Not everything is solvable. Like I, I always try to tell my kids that not everything, first of all, nothing is perfect. You're never going to have the perfect situation scenario outcome. And second of all, sometimes you just have to take a different direction.
1: Yeah. You I agree with that. Listen, there is definitely a time and place for, I mean, if somebody is abusive, if, unfortunately, if somebody has a narcissistic personality disorder you know, things like that. What I would look for when I was seeing clients, I would look for one thing when people came into my office. I honestly did not care how much people had tremendous trauma in childhood, how extreme the trauma was. I didn't care. That wasn't gonna, those are solvable problems with reprogramming tools. I cared about were both people willing to do the work. That's it. Mm-hmm. If both people were willing to do the work, we could make all sorts of magic happen and and save a relationship. If they weren't or one person wasn't, you really can't do much. And at that point, yeah, you can just beat your head against the wall a little
0: bit 100%. if you're staying in a
1: situation like that.
0: I'm a big fan of, of ancient philosophies and stoic wisdom and just sort of the ancient thinkers. And I, I don't really know why. I just, love, I just love the modality of thoughts. If you could travel back in time and give any sort of advice to any historical figure centered around the advice they have given, which you disagree with today, what would that be and who might you converse with?
1: Okay. I would say, I think it was Gandhi who said this quote. I've always disagreed with this. <laughs> I feel really, you know, I have the most respect for Gandhi, but he, and maybe it was Krishnamurti. I think it was Gandhi. And he said, depression is living in the past. Anxiety is living in the future. And I disagree with this. I think that depression is that you're carrying these past wounds at a subconscious level, but I actually think anxiety is that you're projecting the past onto the future. So like if you think of like a a new relationship, like anxiety isn't living in the future. Anxiety is you're taking your unresolved past and putting it on the future because your subconscious mind is sort of this lens you see the world through. So if you imagine like you've never been in a relationship before and let's say you didn't see relationship turmoil growing up, people are always more like open to whatever happens in their first relationship when they're young, right? Because we're not carrying those wounds from the past. So anxiety is actually that we have unresolved wounds from the past and we keep projecting them onto our future thinking they're going to recur. And so I would say that is what I disagree with. And that quote, I think, should be corrected. If somebody had cleaned up all of their subconscious core wounds about the past, they wouldn't be able to project them onto the future. They wouldn't feel anxious.
0: Incidentally, since you dropped Gandhi, I have a tattoo that I got when I was in high school. I just really loved the idea. I first read it. It was called Be the Change. And I just recently learned that Gandhi was not the person who said that.
1: Ah, oh, who it? Be
0: the change that you want to see in your world. It's, it's an unknown figure. Nobody knows who actually said it. It wasn't yeah. Gandhi. There's actually no physical evidence to accredit him with actually ever saying that oh wow i would yeah i always thought it was him be the change you want to see in the world anyhow all right last question yeah it's centered around relationships since we're talking about relationships primarily what's a relationship risk that you think more people should take even if it might go against traditional wisdom
1: okay so i think there's this dynamic where so there's different stages of relationships. So we have a dating stage, then we have a honeymoon stage. Then after the honeymoon stage, we go into the power struggle stage. It's natural and normal for everybody to go through a power struggle, even securely attached people. we will just have a less of one and less extreme. When we make it out of the power struggle, we get into the stability, commitment, and bliss stages. And I think a lot of people they've never made it beyond the power struggle, especially if they're insecurely attached. And the power struggle can go on for 20 years. Like you can stay, you can get married, and you know go into couples there being, you know, for 20 years, you've been in the power struggle. But the power struggle requires two things to move through it at a very basic level. It requires vulnerability. So you can both understand one another's inner fears, wounds, all these different things. And it requires a certain degree of acceptance. It requires accepting that person with their fears, with their flaws, with their different stuff. It doesn't mean you'll communicate about the big stuff and work through it. Like you have to hash stuff out. Absolutely. And like, if you cannot hash out and communicate properly about things, you can't make it beyond the power struggle either. But I would say a lot of people, sometimes when the going initially gets tough, they're like, I should leave. And like, again, there's definitely context where if somebody's not willing to do the work, you go. But when you start working on something with somebody, it's not going to be perfect all the time because we're kind of reprogramming each other through repetition of what we need mm. and, and how we are. And I think of our, our attachment style sort of being like a subconscious set of rules, like for love. And if somebody has a different rule book, it's almost like sitting down, you're playing a board game with somebody and you have the rules for Scrabble and someone has the rules for Monopoly. Like it's going to be chaos. So when we do the work in the power struggle stage, it's not going to be perfect, but I want to see like, is the needle moving? So I think sometimes like the conventional idea is like, okay, there's hardship, get out of there. But I would say there's hardship. There's supposed to be hardship. You're going to grow through the hardship. The hardship's actually designed to help you like see yourself, learn to communicate, be more vulnerable, all these things that actually take love that's more conditional in the dating and honeymoon stage and move it to more unconditionally based love later on because we, we accept each other with our flaws, with our fears, with our stuff. But that can't happen unless you're willing to be a vulnerable communicator, hash things out together, and actually accept imperfections in one another. And shadow work is a good tool for that.
0: The vulnerable communication piece can never be stated enough as critical pieces to relationships. If there's anything I've learned, and I've been in a few relationships in my life, the number one thing that I I have always seen that caused any sort of drama or disconnect or whatever it is, was centered around communication. Bad communication, not transparent enough communication, not enough communication, assuming someone else was doing something because there was no communication, just like it can't be stated enough for me. And it, it literally, and, and when I think back, I was actually having this conversation with myself the other day as I was thinking about how I wanted to approach your show of the relationships that I've been in, in romantic relationships. And there've been a few. I think I was thinking about what is the number one thing that sort of made that relationship come to an end outside of you know, my own context of drama that I brought to the equation. It was bad communication, just yeah. in one form or another. Yeah. 100%. I have a friend who does not have sex with his wife but maybe once every six months and which is crazy, which is crazy to me and and i i literally said to him like it has to be scheduled in the calendar this is a true story like i'm really not making this up it it has to be scheduled in the calendar and i don't really know i'm not questioning whether whatever you do you all do me but i've i've asked him before like you're obviously upset about this because, you know, you, you bring it up pretty regularly, even though you, you know, sort of self-deprecating joke, but it's obviously a sore subject with you. Why have you never broached the subject with your, with your wife? Like, why do you never ask? Like, and he's like, because she gets, she just, she'll get really upset. I don't really, you know, I just, I don't want to upset her. I'm like, dude, that's the core of your problem. If you're asking yeah. me is that you guys can't sit down and have a real conversation about 100%. something that has Meaningful. massive meaning to you. Yeah. And may or may not be meaning to her, but, but the fact that you don't know why her reason is that you only have sex once every six months means that you're not able to communicate with her or she doesn't feel heard or something, but there's some disconnect going on, bro. Like you need to sit down and figure that shit out. And he's just like, no, I just, I just can't, I just, I just just don't want to deal with it. You know, I'm just going to continue doing my life the way it is. You know, she does her thing. I'll do my thing. like,
1: and it's painful. I mean, it's hard to live like that with people. The, the thing I would get people to do is I would get people to like, hey, like it should be so normal to communicate your needs or your triggers or your pain points or about sex that it's like, oh, hey, can you pass me a glass of water? Like it should, we have to normalize all vulnerable communication. Like, and if you want the fast track to a healthy relationship, it's going to be that. And, and if you can do that back and forth, then like everything else is easy. Everything else can work easily.
0: Incidentally enough, uh, I'm in a current relationship right now. I'm I'm quite, quite in love, but she's a huge fan of yours. And I did not even know this until Mm -hmm. you and I had onboarded together and she saw it pop up on on the calendar and she's like, oh my God, I've been following Titus Gibson for years. Like I love Titus everything. And Uh, so it's kind of funny because mm -hmm. that's sort of a testimony to you and who you are, because a lot of the ways that she shows up in a relationship is based upon, well, not necessarily based upon, but mirrors or, or similar to sort of like your logic and thought processes on a lot of things. So there's some of her most endearing qualities, which are communication, attention, you know, like having balance or not, or just being able to show up in relationships and being able to take a role. And, and, and that role is not always the same role, but just like all sort of her attentiveness and all the different things and things that I hear you talk about in a lot of your... Uh, your broadcast that you put out on social media. So kudos to Thank you. Thank you. That's
1: so sweet. And, I'm I'm touched to hear that. Thank you. much. Yeah, well, I'm,
0: I'm sure lots of people have other stories similar to that that, that you've affected their lives. So good Thank stuff you. that you're doing. Thank you so much. I have no further questions for you. You are off the hot seat and you handle that with grace. I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. A lot of people stumble <laughs> through the okay. hot seat. <laughs>
1: I had one
0: one dude who was like, I don't even know how to answer that. I have no idea. I'm like, come on, man. Just give it a shot. Like, just go (laughs) for it. So... Great show! Really learned a lot from you. I'm, I'm, you. You lived up to everything that I thought you were. So thank you for for taking the thank time. You. I, I know you're busy and have lots of things going. on. I
1: about. really enjoyed this conversation so much. So um, yeah. would love to come back. We'll do maybe an episode about obedience and and uh, looking forward to that. And thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> That's good. That one is going to get us in some trouble. I can guarantee. I've I've already been I've already been given the two strikes on YouTube for a couple of topics. So oh, we going to be wow. very careful on obedience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got the two strike count on the YouTube. So okay, is what it is. <laughs> What, an, what a what a great over conversation. trumble
1: then over. Yeah. Dis-
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm just gonna close down with a few things. You don't have to stay here. You can if you can if you want to stay on. Got, um, it'll take me a few 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 seconds just to close this down, and then or you can just go your merry way, and we'll we'll talk. Okay. Thank you right. so much.
1: I actually have a meeting that started a few minutes ago, so I'm gonna jump. But but this was so nice, and we'll we'll definitely be in touch for for a future episode.
0: Thanks, Hayes. I appreciate you. Thank you so
1: much. Bye.
0: Wow, that was a pretty enlightening conversation. Really enjoyed that. Thais truly offers a fresh perspective on relationships and self-growth, and uh, merging both these lived experience and scientific insights and years of studying and all the things that she brings to the table. So um, really fantastic. For those of you who have been inspired by today's conversation, and I hope you have, and you're looking to dive deeper into Thais Gibson's work, just go on YouTube, uh, Thais, T-H-A-I-S, and we'll put it in the show notes below. Um, Thais Gibson, just Google her. You'll find her website. Um, I should probably tell you, know what that is offhand, but I don't, sorry. Um, I, I found her first on YouTube, so that's where I first discovered her. Just Google her, Thais Gibson, and, on, and you'll find all of her work on YouTube. Um, you can explore her extensive resources and insights and even join her academy that she offers. Don't miss out on some of her videos. She really has some some brilliant insights, and I've really enjoyed today's conversation with her. I think that it's really important to have conversations with yourself, conversations with people in your life, that are, as we talked about, transparent, um, are vulnerable, and really help you explore the deeper meaning to life and the deeper meaning to what whatever it is that you might be struggling with. So the the journey to understanding ourselves, uh, our past traumas, uh, the silent workings of our genes—it's a continuous one. It never stops. It's it's a squiggly line. It's a it's not just a path of self awareness, but also of self liberation. I, I think for me. The biggest change that I've ever s- seen in my life in, in terms of how I show up in relationships, how I parent, how I operate my business, it really came around the path of sort of a self-liberation. And, and the way I got to that self-liberation was by deprogramming all of the things that I had learned, learned behaviors, learned traumas, learned learning patterns that had gotten me by Um, as you, as we talked about in the show, you know, I I sort of raised myself, I had siblings and and we raised each other, but most of my life, I've sort of just kind of taken my own path and done my own thing because I just sort of figured out this is the only way to do it, but there are other ways to doing things. And, and it starts with self-awareness and introspection. And what that leads to is this, 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 I, this sort of concept of liberating yourselves from the dogma and the programs that we are, that we are embedded with subconsciously most of our lives and as i said at the outset we have to with with the quote from carl jung we have to consciously unbridge ourselves and unbridge ourselves from our unconscious patterns before we can do that so as we continue to seek these answers let's remember that every discovery every relation revelation everything that we learn about ourselves it brings us one step closer to living a life that's more aligned, more authentic, and more truly our own. So thank you, Tyus Gibson, for shedding light on areas that often remain in the shadows and for reminding us of the beauty of introspection and the strength that lies in our vulnerability. Until we meet again in the next episode, remember to stay curious, be kind, and don't shy away from just being a tad impolite in your quest for truth. Take care and see you soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Your feedback helps us grow and continue to bring you thought-provoking conversations with amazing people. To stay updated on our latest episodes and join the Little Impolite community, be sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where we share news, updates, and even some behind-the-scenes content. For all of our episodes, show notes, and exclusive content, visit our website at alittleimpolite.com. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to A Little Impolite on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I'm Devo, and I look forward to having you join us for the next thought-provoking conversation. Until then, take care and stay curious.